Here, King Athelstan, Lord of Earls, Ring-Giver of Men, and his brother also, Prince Edmund. Age-long glory won in strife with sword's edges near Brunember. They split the shield wall, hewed the battle wood with hammer-beaten blades. Edward's sons, as it was their birthright that they often in battle against every enemy defended the land, the treasure, and homes. Their enemies perished. The men of the Scots and the men of the sea, fated they fell. The field darkened with the blood of men, from the rising of the sun in the morning time when that glorious light glided over the ground, bright candle of God, of the eternal Lord, until that noble creation sank to rest. There lay many warriors destroyed by spears, men of the north shot over shield, and so too the Scots, weary, sated with war. West Saxons, thence the length of the day, in troops pursued the hated peoples, hewed the fugitive harshly from behind with mill-shapen swords. The Mercians did not deny hard handplay to any heroes, who with Anlaf over the sea surge in the belly of a ship had sought land, fated to fight. Five lay still on that battlefield, young kings by swords put to sleep, and seven also of Anlaf's earls, countless of the army, of sailors and Scotsmen. There was put to flight the Northman's chief, driven by need to the ship's prow with a little band. He shoved the ship to sea, the king disappeared on the dark flood, his own life he saved. So there also the old one came in flight to his home in the north. Constantine, that hoary-haired warrior, had no cause to exult at the meeting of swords. He was shorn of his kin, deprived of his friends on the field, bereft in the fray, and his son behind on the place of slaughter, with wounds ground to pieces, too young in battle. He could make no boast, that grey-haired warrior of the sword slaughter, the old deceitful one, no more than could Anlaf. With the remnant of their army, they had no reason to laugh, that they were better in the work of war on the battlefield, of the clashing of banners, of the meeting of spears, of the meeting of men, of the exchange of weapons, when they, on the field of death, played with the sons of Edward. Departed then the Northmen in their nailed ships, dreary survivors of the spears on Dingusmere, over deep water to seek Dublin, back to Ireland, ashamed in spirit. Thus the brothers both together, king and prince, sought their home, the West Saxons' land, exultant from war. They left behind to divide the corpses, the dark-coated one, and the dusk-coated one, the white-tailed eagle to enjoy the carrion, that greedy war-hawk, and that grey beast, the wolf of the wood. Never was there more slaughter on this island, never as many folk felled before this by the sword's edges, and those books tell us, old authorities, since here from the east the Angles and Saxons came ashore. Over the broad salt sea they sought Britain, those proud warsmiths. They overcame the Welsh, glory-eager earls, and took hold of this land.
Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're talking about the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And today we have some very special guests as we are dabbling a little bit deeper into the story of the Battle of Brunnenburg. Uh, these are two gentlemen who have spent a lot of time with the Battle of Brunnenburg. Uh, they covered it with an English series, a Scottish series, and uh, I don't know if they're going to get to it with the, uh, the consorts, but <laughs> we have two gentlemen from Rex Factor, our heroes, Graham and Ollie. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Welcome aboard. Thank you. I should say, for people who don't know us, yes. I'm Graham. Oh, yes, and I'm Ali. Hello. Excellent. <laughs> it is a fantastic experience having you guys... Uh, in front of us via computer, at least. Uh, we have been listening to your podcast for so, so long. As you know, uh, when we decided to start our podcast, uh, you were the inspiration, as you have been now to many other podcasts, which must feel yeah uh, Deeply odd, strange. <laughs> Deeply strange, yeah. yeah. But you guys had such a great format uh, early on in the podcasting days, and uh, we decided to steal a little bit of that. So thank you for making all of this possible. <laughs> And it was William the Fourth episode that we did, wasn't it? Yes, it, so it was. It was almost yeah. as far as possible from that's right <laughs> from Vikings. That's right. Well, but he was yeah. such a delight, you know, very unexpected he figure. He's pineapple head. Yes, yeah. So I'm just explaining right. to yes, Ali which one's William the Fourth. <laughs> this will be a pattern. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we've we've asked you guys here because um, you've now for three different series for your first series on the monarchs of England, on your second series on the monarchs of Scotland, and now with the consorts. You approached the Battle of Brunnenborough from multiple directions now. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, not it didn't actually come up in the uh, the consort mm-hmm. series because uh, <laughs> because Athelstan uh, died a bachelor, so right? We didn't right, have a, that's true. A consort, but you did at least uh, you, with Athelstan, you did cover the controversy of his birth, right? And so you've you've hinted at some of the yes. tensions that yes. were going on in England mm-hmm. at the time. Yes, yeah, so we've. Um, yeah, we've been revisiting the Saxons, to be honest, in much more detail than we actually did it the first time, because mm-hmm. it's uh, nearly 10 years since we started doing the podcast, so it's <laughs> fair to say I'm researching it much more thoroughly now than I was before, so I think yeah. we're a bit more informed now about this period, which is handy for uh, appearing as guests on a podcast where we're <laughs> experts. Yes, Wonderful. right. <laughs> One of we, us. we have that same problem. We keep going back to our early episodes and thinking, that we could probably do those competently now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or at least a little bit less messy. Well, so yeah, so Brunnenburg, uh, quite right. quite a battle. It is referred to as the Great War, at least uh, up until the Battle of Hastings in 1066. Well, some um, some texts even still call it the Great War after that. It's is that still right? yeah, treated as more important than Hastings by a few chroniclers. I guess um, they weren't paying attention. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one battle establishes England. One battle establishes who owns England. I suppose it's uh, I you know so. sort of equal weight. Uh, yeah. But so what we're going to do today is talk about this in uh, a few different, uh, as we usually do, break up into sections. Uh, we'll talk about our battle buildup, uh, sort of what's going on leading up to uh, the Battle of Brunnenburg. The actual battle, which mostly we have literary sources rather than historical sources for. And so we'll be talking about things that are probably a bit uh, loosed from reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then deal with the aftermath where we can kind of dig more into the the reliable history again. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, let's get started. Okay. So, Ali, if you would do the honors. Backgroundy stuff. Wonderful. <laughs> what an honor. Excellent. All right. 
To set the stage here, I think it's worth noting that there are a lot of lingering tensions throughout Anglo-Saxon England that go back at least to the 5th century, when the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes seized the land from the Britons and established their own kingdoms. The Britons, known to the Anglo-Saxons as the Welsh or foreigners, never really got over that. Right. So there's a lot of tension in Anglo-Saxon England, as the Vikings are always looking to take advantage of any Anglo-Saxon weakness, and the Welsh harbor deep resentment over the loss of their ancestral lands. Yeah, so... um. It's actually, for the context of the English, it's not just those those tensions with the Welsh, but it's actually England as a country has only really just become a thing. So previously you used to have different kingdoms within what we now call England. So we'd have uh, Wessex, uh, Mercia, Essex, Kent, East Anglia, Northumbria and uh, Cornwall. Mm -hmm. So it's only really once we get to Alfred the Great at the end of the 9th century that we start to move away from different kingdoms to an idea of one English people under one state um, and it's actually largely thanks to the Vikings in some ways that this happens because when <laughs> in the 860s the Vikings come over with their great heathen army and just start conquering rather than raiding the different Saxon kingdoms they all start to fall so Northumbria falls, East Anglia falls, Mercia is occupied so the only Saxon kingdom that was still holding out was Wessex which was under the rule of Alfred the Great and at one point in 878, when he's surprised at a 12th night by a Viking raid by a chap called Guthrum, he actually gets expelled from court and England is reduced to a basically little island right. in a marshy swamp, right. <laughs> which uh, is basically Ali's idea of the Saxons, just mud. Never got past it in my eyes. Burning cakes. Yeah. And uh, right. not really not really having an awful lot of fun. Mm. Right. This little, uh, thankfully, though. This little island where they found the uh, the jewel, right, the Alfred jewel, this nonsensical piece yeah, of archaeology that just seems way too good to be true, that it has to be right. a fraud and isn't. <laughs> yeah, so um, that all comes because Alfred is able to escape from his marshy swamp, uh, link up with loyal Saxon lords across the country mm -hmm. that are still holding out, and uh, he has a great victory in the Battle of Eddington against Guthrum. And he then agrees with Guthrum to split England. Uh, so we have the Saxony bits and the Dane law occupied by the Vikings, mm -hmm. that sort of East Anglia going up the East Coast and then sort of basically the north of England. Um, so that's the situation under Alfred. Then his son, Edward the Elder, that follows him, and also his daughter, Ethelfled, who becomes Lady the Mercians, take on his dream, really, of a united England and conquer various Viking territories, and they have an awful lot of success. So when Edward dies in the year 924. England now consists of Wessex, all of the south, East Anglia, Essex, Kent, the Midlands, which is Mercia. So it's now really just Northumbria, uh, centred around the city of York, where the Vikings are still dominant. So when Athelstan becomes king in 924, we're quite a way towards actually establishing an England but there's still a bit of area that Athelstan would consider to be English, mm -hmm. which is currently ruled by Vikings. Yeah. This is brilliant. I'm just uh, listening to a podcast here. First time I can just listen to you and not ask questions. Oh, right. Yeah. God. Amazing. We should also say that in doing the consuls, we did cover Ethelfled, Lady of the Mercians, who technically was sort of a Mercian consort and also a sort of Mercian ruler, but was very impressive and worth doing. Unfortunately, Ali can't quite remember her name. Well, they're, right. they're, they've all got the same name. 
I mean, let's just face it. It is a bit confusing. It's the same name. You can definitely play the naming game with Anglo-Saxon women, right? There's sort of there's three or four uh, prefixes and three or four suffixes. You're just going to jam them together over and over again. Exactly. Athel this or elf that. They need nicknames. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Ed. Don't forget Ed. Give who? (laughs) Right. yeah, no. Uh, so when we think about the uh, the the creation of the Dane Law, uh, what we're talking about then is a kind of, as you said, division of the country, sort of dividing it diagonally across the middle, so that you've got the north and east mm-hmm. on one side, the south and west on the other, uh, both establishing their own laws, but agreeing to a kind of uh, an, a, a, a cooperation about those laws. Right. Uh, so coinage will be independent. Laws will be independent, but they'll be sort of in consultation with one another. Uh, ideally, the Dane law is supposed to be a kind of peaceful way to work out surviving on the island together. Mm-hmm. But as I think you were suggesting, uh, it's always kind of more in the breach than the observance. Right? There's always somebody on either side suggesting that maybe we should just sort of push the border a little bit this way, a little bit that way, see if we can't work it to our advantage a little bit more. Uh, and so it's never really it never really marks a cessation of hostilities so much as a a kind of uh, a cold war as opposed to a hot war that occasionally flares up. Yeah, that's right. And that border shifting also takes place in the north, right? So just as the Anglo-Saxons and the the Danes are kind of battling over where that southern border of the Dane law might be, uh, you also have in the north the Scottish tribes or the Picts or the Scottish kingdoms eventually starting to try to push south into English territory, into Danish territory, and eventually battling over ownership of York, right? I suppose this, uh, the, the, it's called the Dane Law because the Anglo-Saxons have the same problem with Scandinavians that Ali has with queen consorts. They really just cannot be <laughs> uh, bothered to differentiate among them. And so it's, they're all Danes, more or less. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, it's always struck point. me as kind of a high-handed attitude for people who are very clear about the difference between Angles and Jutes, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's if we think about it uh, as as Graham is suggesting as a uh, a kind of stumbling block to Wessex England's attempts to consolidate its status as the yeah. English kingdom, uh, we can think about that from the other direction as well, right? That the for uh, the Danes, the Dane law represents that border represents a kind of unfinished plan of conquest. Right, that it's uh, it isn't just on the one side. The English have their plan for England, and it's the one that we tend to think of as being the future of England because mm-hmm. it is the future of England. But on the Danish side of things, there is that idea as well that this is a conquest that has not yet been completed, uh, and so that border is, I think, permeable on both sides. And something which is interesting when we did um, Ethelfled again was the fact that themes like the the English side do have a largely centralized view of things, although there are still some lingering tensions, which mm-hmm. is particularly the case for Athelstan in terms of Wessex and Mercia, accepting that they're part of the same country. But essentially, we've got one king of the English who is looking to expand, whereas in the Dane law, there isn't a king of the Dane law, is there? There are actually lots of different rulers who aren't always necessarily working very well together. Right. Now, Another important issue to consider as we near the year 937 and the Battle of Brunnenberg is the increasing involvement of the Hiberno Norse. Now, going back four or five generations of rulers, York had been ruled by Norse Vikings, thanks to Ivar the Boneless. And you can go you can go listen to our saga brief on Ivar if you want more on that one. 
Uh, but for our purposes, what basically ends up happening is that around the year 934, the Norse Viking ruler of Dublin, a man called Guthfrith, a grandson of Ivar the Boneless, dies. His son Anlaf, who will become important in the Battle of Brunenburg, seizes the opportunity to secure his family's holdings in Ireland. Uh, Anlaf goes on to conquer several of the rival kingdoms around Dublin, including the kingdoms of Brea. And he also attacks a famous monastery in the area and then the city of Limerick. Now, Anlaf is also successful on the sea, where he attacks the Isle of Man and takes control of that as well. So by 937, Anlaf has basically established himself as the sole ruler of the Hiberno-Norse in Ireland and the Isle of Man, which is quite an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And now he's got his eyes set on Northumbria and its capital, York, which he feels by rights is his. You see, Anlaf's uncle Sigtrick was given rule of York by Edward or Athelstan, I, I can't quite remember. It would have been Edward initially. Yeah, yeah, it would have been Edward, right. So so when Edward dies, Athelstan honors the arrangement between his father and Sigtrick in York by arranging a marriage between Sigtrick and his sister Eadgith in 926. And things seem to be going great, but Sigtrick suddenly dies a year later in 927. And before Sigtrick's brother Guthfrith of Dublin can cross the sea and claim the throne of York, King Athelstan rushes northward and takes the city for himself. And with that, the Anglo-Saxons have claimed York, allowing Athelstan to establish himself as ruler of a unified Anglo-Saxon England. Mm -hmm. And this naturally rubs the Northumbrian Danes and Saxons the wrong way. <laughs> but Athelstan doesn't mind, really. Uh, he even takes advantage of the opportunity to push further north into Scotland to test the strength of King Constantine there. Well, yeah, he just sort of spreads... Um, he just 927 this year where suddenly someone takes the uh, the lid off and Athelstan yeah. is this mm -hmm. very angry bee that just goes around <laughs> stinging everything he possibly can because he, he gets the Scots ruler, Constantine II. Mm -hmm. um, Cumbria is his own sort of separate kingdom that's all Cumbria, Strathclyde, yeah. the Britons that are up in the north. It's always slightly grey what they're doing, but this chap, Owain of Cumbria... Um, some of the Welsh rulers. He also goes down and gives the Cornish a bit of a knock on the head as well. That's right. But he brings them all together at uh, Amont Bridge in Penrith, and they all effectively have to acknowledge him uh, as their overlord. And Constantine is forced to um, commit to not supporting the Vikings, which he had been doing a little bit. Right. Uh, which is quite a reversal of uh, the Scottish story that originally Constantine had had a great victory uh, against the Vikings when they came over from Dublin. And when Athelstan comes along, Constantine is quite keen to set the Vikings up as effectively a buffer yes, state exactly. between him. Yeah, yeah York and is very England. useful to Constantine. To you know, if, if York can be the the key for the Vikings, then they can they can defend uh, Scotland from from all of the the angry Anglo-Saxons. Right, and so by by propping up Olaf's claimed Northumbria. Constantine's kind of playing a similar game to the one Alfred did in agreeing to the Dane law in the first place, isn't he? Mm -hmm. uh, you allow or encourage a kingdom of Scandinavian Vikings on whichever of your borders is facing the greatest threat from Viking attack. Yeah. Uh, and that means that future attacks are likely to fall on those new neighbors, right? set a thief to catch a thief kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, so Olaf is fighting for Northumbria for his own reasons, but the alliance with Constantine, that serves Constantine's purpose as well by reestablishing that buffer state. 
Yeah. And so by the time you get to 937, you have Anlaf as the sole ruler of the Hiberno Norse, and he's feeling quite bold. Um, so he, he's going to claim York. You have Constantine, who's feeling a little bit uh, used by Athelstan and abused. Um, you also have Owen of Strathclyde feeling the same way. And the Welsh, well, the Welsh are always looking for an excuse to fight against the Anglo-Saxons. Um, they, they're still harboring a grudge for what happened back in uh, the uh, the age of Horsa and Hengist, when the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes came and ruined Britain. Well, it never goes well for the Welsh, Welsh sadly. Does <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah. It really doesn't, sadly. I think what we end up with... Is this my excuse to get Edward I into this episode? Oh, by all well, means. Well, it's been a while. We've made oh, 20 no. minutes in. There you go. I've done it. That's fine. <laughs> Does that count? Is that sufficient? Yeah, yeah, all yeah. Right. As long as that makes the cut. We're right, I think we're going to be fine. <laughs> but yeah, for Constantine the, uh, Constantine the Second to say in 934, perhaps because of the... Uh, support that he had been giving uh, to the Vikings. Mm-hmm. Athelstan does actually invade right, Scotland. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why York is really so important because Athelstan owns York at this point rather than the Vikings. Mm-hmm. He is able to launch a very impressive campaign into Scotland. Mm-hmm. So he actually goes by sea all the way up to, or he sends boats all the way up to Caithness, which is the very, very north of the country. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, he goes up by land and corners Constantine and this sort of Dunatar Castle, which is the Rabadinshire in the northeast. So that's really unprecedented in terms of the reach for an Anglo-Saxon monarch to go all the way into Scotland. They don't actually ever have a battle because Constantine quite sensibly just avoids it. Mm-hmm. But he is forced then to go all the way back down to Athelstan's court, along with various Welsh rulers, and is having to witness charters and basically watch Athelstan declare himself Emperor of Britain. Yeah. Right. So from Constantine's perspective, he doesn't have that buffer state in the north. Mm-hmm. He's being humiliated by having to trounce around in England and be Athelstan's Batman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he's looking for an opportunity to uh, defeat him once and for all. But he's not, he can clearly see, able to defeat him purely with his own mm-hmm. Scottish army. Exactly. He's going to need some allies. Now, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, that means that uh, Athelstan reached further into Scotland than Edward I. Is that correct? Are we? Ooh, <laughs> that was not the second mention you were hoping for. <laughs> different times, different. Yeah, scenarios. certainly. Yeah, that's right. Um, it yeah. But right. So it sounds like what we're ending up with here is that the English perspective on this battle is always that uh, Athelstan fights off this invading force. Uh, but as soon as you start to look at the other side of the battle, what you see is a lot of people who are coming together in common cause against, as you said, this angry bee in the south that is suddenly <laughs> stinging everyone in sight. Uh, and they're trying to put a check on his growing power. Yeah, if if you look at any of the other sources from the Welsh or the Scots, the Anglo-Saxons are clearly the aggressors. John and I have been playing around with Michael Livingston's collection of relevant sources called The Battle of Brunenburg, A Casebook. And it actually opens with a Welsh prophecy about what will happen in Britain. Oh, yes. It's at the front because Livingston and other scholars suggest that the prophecy might actually be from the, the time leading up to the Battle of Brunenburg. Um, it, it's called The Great Prophecy of Britain. And it talks about how the Welsh, Irish, Scots, and Vikings will get together and beat the Anglo-Saxons out of Britain entirely. And it's just fantastic. I had never read it before. And it just it's just full of great lines like this. Son of Mary, great the word. How is it that they do not burst forth from the rule of the Saxons and their boasting? Far off may the shitheads of Gwythra and Gwyneth be. The foreigners will be driven into exile. No one will have them. They will have no land. They will not know why they wander in every river mouth. When they purchased Thanet with cunning falsehood with horse and hengist, their power was constrained, their gain at our expense unworthy. 
And it just goes on and on for pages talking about how terrible the Anglo-Saxons are and how they deserve the terrors coming their way. It's great. I'm a little shocked the Welsh prophets work blue. Yes, I know. <laughs> they use the word shithead several times in this, referring to the Anglo-Saxons. Interestingly, they uh, don't have any swear words um, in Welsh. So I see even there they were using an English word. (laughs) (laughs) If nothing else, that's what the Anglo-Saxons brought. Yeah, quite right. Well, my Welsh isn't very good. Uh, In fact, it's non-existent. But uh, looking at the text, I'm guessing they're translating the word uh, kechmun as shithead. Uh, not that's K E C H M Y N. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a good translation or not, but uh, I kind of like it. <laughs> so if anyone out there speaks Welsh uh, and and knows that word, please please share. All right, so I think we've got all of our pieces on the battlefield. Excellent. Let's jump into the actual day. The Battle of Brunamba. So. Uh, one of the things we have to talk about before we can really get into what happens on the field is where exactly that field is. Yeah. Uh, where is where that? Where shall we find ourselves? I think we should check in with our, our local Englishmen who are of the area, <laughs> and they probably have a good sense of it. Well, uh, one of the problems is that uh, ultimately we don't, uh, we're not entirely sure which area we should be looking in for Brunenberg. Yes. <laughs> uh, awkwardly, there isn't a place in England today called Brunenberg. Right. So, uh, no, oh. but that's a good example of a place that doesn't sound a million miles away. And is up north. And is up north. It's a lovely castle. Lovely castle. Worth a visit. But yeah, not Brunenberg. It comes up as an early possibility, but yeah, definitely doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. So essentially what we're having to do is look for place names that might once have been called Brunenberg uh, and then work out what they might have become later to try and get any sense of whether we know it or not. So apparently historians have mooted over 40 different yes. uh, locations of where it could be. And some of the sources that do exist, which tend to be medieval and somewhat after the fact rather mm-hmm. than contemporary, we've got John of Worcester saying that Olaf and Constantine entered the mouth of the Humber, uh, which is sort of up near... That's not far enough north, is it? Up near Hull. Well, that's the thing. Did you call it Hell? Hull. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry to northern listeners there. <laughs> uh, Simeon of Durham uh, names the battle as Weundun, hmm, which yes. is very different to Brunanburh. Yes. Um, uh, the poem makes clear that it's not in Wessex or Scotland because both Athelstan and Constantine have to travel to it. So we know that it's not down south and it's not all the way up north in Britain. So precise. But somewhere between the two, we don't quite know. The Vikings are said to have made off in boats, so it must be somewhere near the coast or yeah. the river. But otherwise, there's not a lot of topographical details. In my mind, it's on a beach, though. Is that right? Well, it's probably near a beach oh. of some, or something like that, so that they can get away in their ships. Yeah, well, so I'm just that... thinking of Bamba. Maybe. I mean, yeah. You may well have spent the entire discussion <laughs> on something <laughs> completely different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there are quite a few different suggestions. So some of the main ones that have been uh, mooted, there's a place called Brinsworth in South Yorkshire, mm-hmm. uh, which is known as Brinsford in Doomsday. Um, it's near a Roman fort called Temple uh, Temple Borough. It's in the Don Valley, which would fit with John of Worcester claiming about um, the ships going on the Humber, mm-hmm. and also right. about the possibility that Olaf and uh, or Anlaf and Constantine are raiding in Mercia in the Midlands before the battle. Right. Uh, but... There's a linguistic problem, which I think is more uh, more your sort of area, that the place name can't be a derivation of Brunenberg. It doesn't mean the same thing. So right. I think Brunenberg would be 
effectively fort of a man called Bruner. Mm-hmm. But Brinsworth, unfortunately, doesn't mean the same thing. Another suggestion is Brunswalk, which is all the way up in Dumfries and Galloway, which would be uh, Scotland today. Um, that's on the west coast uh, at that time, sort of England, perhaps. It's at a latitude with Dublin, which makes sense, because if you were Anlaf and you're going to sail over, mm-hmm. if you just basically go in a straight line towards mainland <laughs> Britain, yeah. that's pretty much where you'd land. It's also the site of an Iron Age fort, and it's got a Roman camp uh, and it's on the Solway Firth, which is good for being able to get in and get out. And it's also quite close to Cumbria and Scotland. So if those two armies probably weren't able to campaign too far away from home, mm-hmm. then that would have suited them. I always well. imagined it on the east coast as well. Is the it? east coast? Yeah. Well, that'd be quite difficult from uh, yeah. Dublin. Probably not the east coast. Oh, right. Although you, well, we are talking about the Vikings who are, you know, they're pretty good with ships. They'll sail They'll sail anywhere. It's true. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's true. Uh, I mean, that really, would have been, you know, take them by surprise. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny All you the mentioned the, um, the armies not being able to travel very far. The Scandinavian sources uh, do make uh, a point of saying that the Scots army is running into problems with supply mm-hmm. uh, during mm-hmm. the campaign. And that uh, that they have to choose their battle site or choose their campsite based on where it would be easiest for them to resupply their troops. Yeah, so a loca- location near to them would have made more sense. Uh, mm-hmm. But we've got a similar problem, I think, in terms of the name that it doesn't fit with meaning right. Brunenburg, um, and also in terms of I think Athelstan's perspective, and maybe even for the Scots as well, there isn't really a major settlement around there because I think in nine three four when he campaigns into Scotland, there's sort of evidence of him stopping off at York and all these various major settlements along the way to feed and supply his army. Mm-hmm. But if they were going up to Dumfries and Galloway, there's not really any evidence of where they might have gone to get mm-hmm. there and kept supplied. Right. So perhaps a more likely uh, site that's been mooted is a place called Bromborough in Chester. So yeah. this is northwest England. Right. Uh, it's on the Mersey which has mm-hmm. often been used uh, in times gone by by sort of the Dublin Vikings coming over and doing some raiding. So that means that they've got some settlements there and also they wouldn't be reliant on the Scots for their supplies, which might not have been such a great tactic if they were going further north. And 13th century charters suggest that it might have had an original place name of Brunenburg. Well, that's oh, it then, isn't it? There you go. And uh, there's also a nearby place, apparently, called Rice Wood, which has got a small fortification called Wellondris, which isn't a million miles away from Weondoon, mm-hmm. Simeon mm-hmm. of Durham. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, why, do, why, why hasn't everyone said, well, that's clearly it? Well, because, <laughs> unfortunately, there's still absolutely zero archaeological evidence right. of a battle of there anywhere. I think they've looked. I think I might have read something about a problem with the golf course. And uh, oh <laughs> man, yeah. we should come over to England. We can do a little um, yeah. Uh, what do you call it? With a beeping oh, metal yeah, detecting. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, a little bit of detecting. Yeah, there are a lot yeah. of a lot of good stuff gets found these days that way. Just yeah. really deep Settlers. golf holes. Yes, see what you can yeah, find. A little bit deeper, yeah. yeah. I did a little bit of look into the into the the place name uh, from the Welsh sources, and uh, what I what I came up with in in those sources was that uh, they called uh, Brune means stream, and so Burk is obviously fortica- fortification, and so you've just got a fortification by a stream that could be almost yeah. anywhere, right? Yeah, it's so any not, decent not fortification, helpful. isn't yeah. it? With the river, yeah. yeah. Mm. So not not terribly helpful from those sources, right? Uh, the Scandinavian sources uh, aren't uh, historically useful either, uh, but uh, they have that interesting thing. Simeon of Durham 
Uh, and I'm so glad that you mentioned him because uh, like like Ali's Ember the First, I have to get Samin Abdurham mentioned at least once a year somewhere in the world. He's <laughs> uh, full of it. Uh, but he says, he says uh, Wendun, which is called by another name, uh, being mm-hmm. Brunnenberg. Mm-hmm. Right, so he recognizes the two different names. What he's doing there is working in the Scandinavian as well as the English tradition because that Wendun name uh, is much closer to the name that's given in the sagas. Uh, in Eil's saga, it's called uh, Vinhed or Vinuskog. Uh, so uh, Vinheath and Vinwood are the two locations named. Right? It's that problematic Vin that's also in Vinland and that right. caused all that trouble with people looking for grapevines somewhere near the, the Scandinavian settlements in North America. Uh, but it's a word that can mean wine or friendly or good. Uh, or it could come from the Welsh uh, Gwyn, white, uh, or the English wan, wagon, uh, so wagon field, um, and a number of other Old English words which range in meaning from hope to a cyst, such as is found on the skin. Uh, so, and, <laughs> I hope it's not that. <laughs> uh, it's the, that, so that name element, that when, um, has this etymological complexity to it that is worse than useless when it comes to actually trying to find one location. Yeah. Uh, but it's, so I think what Simeon is doing there is trying to give, as he sometimes does when he writes, tries to give the term as it will be understood by his sort of Northern Anglo Norse audience, as well as by a Southern English audience. Yeah. Doesn't get us any closer to finding it. <laughs> well, I think that one of the issues is uh, lack of trying, you know, yeah, that's right. What I right. We should definitely do something about this. <laughs> I think so too. Maybe next summer we'll we'll all get together. Yeah. And, uh, right. Pretend we'll just walk around the golf course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Disguise one as a golf club. Exactly. Oh, that's there you exactly go. What I'm thinking. Right. I wonder yeah. if we could. Uh, what what Ale Saga does offer, and I know this has also been a, a path people have used to try to find the location, is a detailed description of the configuration of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Right? If you can't find it by name, maybe you can find it by topography. Uh, The author describes it this way. At the place chosen for the battlefield, hazel rods have been put up to mark where it would be fought. The site was chosen carefully, as it had to be level and big enough for large armies to enter. The main feature was a level moor, with a river on one side and a large forest along the other side. There was a fortress north of the heath where King Olaf stayed and kept the greater part of his army. Beyond it lay a large stretch of countryside, which he considered the better for transporting provisions for his army. King Athelstan's men set up camp over a very long range at the narrowest part of the point between the forest and the river, and Athelstan himself took possession of a burr on the southern side of the moor. Now, that's so specific. It's well, it is. Uh, they've gone. People have gone all over the place. Uh, out of uh, uh, Bromborough is one of the places that they found a lot of the what they think are a lot of the topographical features that are described there. Uh, but when we look at that description, I think it's claimed to being useful doesn't really hold up terribly well. No. What's being described here is a board game. Right? I mean, the 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 boundaries are very clearly laid out. Right, we can have our battlefield, and no one can really leave the battlefield because you've got the river on one side, the forest on the other. You've got, you're able to sort of block off the two ends. Uh, You've got two conveniently placed fortresses set back from the field for the two commanders of the, of the army. It it sounds like something you would set up on a not very sophisticated video game. Uh, It's a clear backdrop to set a story of the battle against, but I think that's all we can really say that it is. Yeah. Uh, And of course, now that we've, 
spent all this time talking about this. I mean, <laughs> and, uh, what we're back to is we don't know where it is. Yeah, so we just spend yeah. like 20 minutes saying uh, a bunch of stuff where we, <laughs> we conclude know. with nothing. Right, right. On the other hand, everyone thought Heinrich Sliman was nuts for using the Iliad to find Troy until he went ahead and found it. So yeah. maybe there's an archaeologist somewhere out there right now with a golf club disguised. <laughs> it's uh, definitely there. Detector. I mean, I think we found it. I, I like it. I like the answer. One uh, last thing on the location, not in terms yeah. of where it is, because as you said, we don't actually know where it is. We definitely do. <laughs> but uh, one other thing to note is that it's possible that if it's in a location where perhaps the sympathizers were on... Uh, where the location, sorry, what am I trying to say? Where the people who live there are on the sides of the losers, there mm. might not be any particular folk memories celebrated right. about the battle. Right. Yeah. So, because it's not within the vic- I don't know if we want spoilers as to who wins or not. <laughs> oh, that's fine. I think it's fairly clear. Because it's not within the heart of uh, the English kingdom, um, right. it's not a location perhaps that's celebrated because the people who are there perhaps don't really have any interest in celebrating it, and that's thus right. there's no memory of it. I think if you look at the uh, literature that's written very quickly after the Battle of the Chronicles, you get a very clear sense of exactly that, right? The Anglo-Saxon chronicle poem is full of this sort of glorious battle, right? That the that essentially the king and his brother together run the entire Scots army off the field and massacre them. Uh, and then there's the, the Welsh chronicle, the entire entry for which is 937, War and Brood. Yes. <laughs> Not terribly detailed. <laughs> Yeah, it's also worth noting that uh, that Athelstan dies like what three or four years after this. Um, he he doesn't yeah, really last right. too much longer, and certainly you know his brother can take some credit. Was it Edmund can take some credit for for having been there? He's part of the poem, which may have in fact been written Edmund's reign, not uh, during Athelstan's mm-hmm. reign. Um, so yeah, things things get messy fairly quickly. It might seem like a, a pure English victory, and that modern day England is established at the Battle of Brunnenburg, but. In fact, things only appear to be clean. Uh, once you get the death of Athelstan, uh, things get messy again a little bit quickly. Right. And in fact, later on, I think we, some of the sources outside of England get confused very quickly as to which battle this is. Right. Uh, the, Heim, the Heimskringla tells a story about an English king fighting against the uh, the Norse and the Scots together and five kings being killed on the battlefield and all of this. But the battle they're describing is between Eric Bloodaxe and uh, Edmund in the early mm-hmm. 940s. It's but all the all the details of it are the Battle of Brunnenburg. Uh, that it's this at the time it is one battle in a kind of ongoing, very messy local history, uh, and so perhaps its importance. Although later on it becomes very important in English stories of the establishing of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom, mm-hmm. perhaps locally just isn't considered to be one very significant battle so much as the latest in a series of battles. It's also the case that um, Athelstan um, is, he's, he's the son of Edward the Eldest, but uh, Edward the Elder, but actually when he became king, he'd actually grown up with his aunt in Mercia and mm-hmm. he did face a competition to become king with uh, Edward the Elder's next son by his second wife. So there was a sense that when Edward the Elder died, Mercia and Wessex were still competing for the kingship. Oh, that's and true, isn't it? One yeah. of the ways it's resolved is that effectively Athelstan doesn't marry and recognises his right. half-brother Edmund as his heir. So perhaps when Athelstan dies and Edmund is the celebrated proper Wessex king, mm-hmm. there's actually mm-hmm. not a lot of desire among the West Saxons to oh, celebrate yeah. Athelstan's achievements, Certainly. although they can't completely gloss over 
Bruno, but <laughs> equally they're not right. going to go into it perhaps as much as if it had been Edmund himself. Right. When we talk about the actual battle, uh, we are really in a position of looking at only accounts of how the battle ended. Right. Mm-hmm. That the um, the English version of events is often the the glory of Appleston and Edmund uh, glossing over any difficulty in their background or in Appleston having to make that bargain with his uh, stepmother to avoid uh, marrying uh, and avoid having children so that Edmund could then stand as the heir. Uh, when we put aside all of that, and the poem does, right, it sort of ignores all of the messiness in favor of just telling a glorious story of victory. Um, the the other writers, the people who come later, are kind of left to invent their own versions of the battle. Right. Uh, and so uh, we get something like Ale Saga, which we've been talking about on the podcast, uh, which is this detailed <clears throat> description of the battle. Um, and it really is um, a battle description. It's a battle report. Uh, you, you get troop movements. You get flanking maneuvers. You get a very clear sense of where everyone is on the field at any given time. And positions of the relative troops are hugely important to uh, to success or failure. All of that as best we can tell, is made up out of whole cloth, right? So there's no um, written precedent for that kind of a detailed description of the blow-by-blow of the battlefield. Uh, And really, uh, even in oral tradition, what you mainly have is a glorious victory in which many kings are put to sleep, which is a very odd way of putting it, but uh, is is the way it's described. (laughs) Right, right, put to sleep, put down. Um, so what you end up with, I mean, this Ale Saga gives us a version of the Battle of Brunnenborough that reads like a battle report in which on both sides there are Vikings. And that's something that I don't think the English stories tend to focus on, uh, that there are Viking mercenaries. In addition to the Norse Irish, in addition to addition to the Scots, there are Viking mercenaries fighting on both sides of this battle. Yeah. Not just fighting, but uh, Ail and Thorolf are given leadership positions, right? Yes. They're commanders of troops in Athelstan's army, almost as, as far as Ailsaga is concerned, as, as though they're the ones running the show. Right, right. Oh, is there a reliable it's... source? No, no absolutely Ailsaga. not. <laughs> no. I was hoping that we were about to go into it. And we could... Right, no, it's, oh. it's very much interested in uh, uh, fronting the story of Ail and Thorolf to the extent that Constantine is never mentioned. In the saga, right. <laughs> uh, nor is uh, Owen of Strathclyde. Uh, Olaf becomes the sort of the leader of the army invading. Yeah, he's called Olaf the, the Red, right? Um, he's given two um, sort of uh, commanders, Hring and Adils, who are turncoat Northumbrian earls, um, who uh, after Owen defeats another pair of earls, uh, he that th- these two then turn and become part of the Scots army. And so it's it's very much uh, Ale and Thorolf against Hring and Adils. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the, the front of the army. You end up with this image of Scandinavians being used as cannon fodder, uh, that they're, they're placed at the front on both sides, and most of the carnage of the two days fighting is dished out and absorbed by those groups. It's just, it's, the description in the saga is that it's a brutal war and that most of the blood spilled is not actually English or even Scottish. Yeah. So, John, you mentioned, uh, you know, all these uh, the, because of the lack of information, 
how later sources are able to, uh, later authors are able to kind of add their own, flesh it out. And mm-hmm. one of the things I noticed going through the casebook, with, which contains all of the available sources for the Battle of Brunnenberg and issues around the Battle of Brunnenberg, um, the, the entries get a lot longer, but a lot more creative <laughs> as you go yes, forward. <laughs> you get hundreds and hundreds of years years out. Um, but a couple things that I, I thought were quite fascinating was in the early 12th century, in the Vita Odonis, the Life of Oda uh, by Admir of Canterbury, we get the story of Athelstan's broken sword, which then gets kind of absorbed in a variety of ways into the the standard narrative of of this this particular battle. Um, but according to the saint's life, Athelstan went to war with with uh, basically went to war with pagans because it's a saint's life. So you're really targeting the Vikings here more than the Scots or anyone else. Um, while he's in battle, Athelstan's sword breaks at the hilt; it shatters, and he's left surrounded by enemies. And his friend Oda is there. And Oda begins praying. And while Athelstan's probably crapping himself, uh, Oda rushes over and says, Lord, look at your look down at your scabbard and pull your sword out. You'll see that it is whole. Mm-hmm. And indeed, when he looks down, the sword is restored by the miracle of Oda's prayer. Um, that then gets absorbed. And I don't know if it's if if it's that particular story or some kind of version that's adapted, but basically what ends up happening by the time you get to William of Malmesbury. Um, another 12th century source, is you get the story of Athelstan rushing to prepare his men for battle. And as he's preparing his men for battle, his sword falls out of the scabbard. And he's rushing around the battlefield, uh, and ready to enter battle, and he realizes that his sword isn't there. And it's at that moment that he, <laughs> he rather than Oda, turns his eyes up to God and to St. Aldhelm and prays uh, for some kind of aid. And he reaches down and finds that his sword is miraculously restored to the scabbard. Mm -hmm. And he uses that sword to defeat all of his enemies. And William of Malmesbury tells us that that sword, I think this is such an interesting detail because it lends credibility. And this is something that Malmesbury is is so good at. He tells us that sword is still in the treasury, uh, in the king's (laughs) treasury. And you can go see it. And it is engraved on one side. So he's got all these nice little details to suggest that it's it's a a real story. This sword given to them by God. Speaking of William of Malmesbury, um, he adds another piece that's quite interesting uh, to the story. Um, this has to do with Onloff, the, the king of the Hiberno-Norse, uh, infiltrating Athelstan's camp before the battle even takes place. Oh, um, yes. They talk about him as a, a very clever and tricky individual, and he's quite talented with music. So he dresses himself up as a minstrel or a shulk. Here we go. And he hangs out. He hangs out in front of Athelstan's tent and starts playing music. And he's trying to get Athelstan's attention. And sure enough, the guards are like, "Oh, I think that my lord will really enjoy uh, the music that you're playing." So they invite him in during the day, and he plays all kinds of music for them and entertains them. And while he's doing that, Malmesbury notes that he's looking around at who's there, looking for any kind of clues as to what what's going to happen in the battle, um, looking for where the bed is, all of that kind of information. <laughs> And when, when he's finally done playing and they're ready to start talking about battle strategy, they pay Onloff and say, you can go about your business. Uh, one of the men sees Onloff leaving and Onloff takes the money and buries it. And this soldier recognizes Onloff. I guess he had worked with him in, in previous years um, and goes to Athelstan and says, that man was, uh, was Onloff himself. Uh, you should be careful. I advise that you move your tent <laughs> to some other location. And so Athelstan, you know, scolds the guy for not speaking up sooner, uh, but does move his tent. And later that night, a bishop arrives, sets up his tent in that same spot, thinking, this is a great location. I wonder why nobody's (laughs) hanging out here. (laughs) And sure enough, uh, in the evening, Onloff returns with his his men. They 
get into the tent and kill the bishop and his whole party, uh, thinking that it might be the king. They realize that it's not. And so they're in the camp and they start to fight. Uh, Athelstan then wakes up and calls his men to arms and then he drops his sword and we move forward with the narrative as uh, as it's kind of established. Um, but it's a, it's a fun little story and that gets uh, then repeated. So this story about the missing sword, the broken sword, and the story of Onlof infiltrating the camp, that gets repeated over and over and over again uh, moving forward and helps to flesh out an otherwise kind of spare narrative. I love that with um, the idea that A, uh, you know, Onlof himself is in there, B, Athelstan thinks, well, I should probably move, but I'll still, you know, just go to bed and uh, yeah. everything will right. probably be fine. Well, tell him well, off. you want to be fresh well. for the battle the next day. That's right, yeah. yeah. So uh, Malmesbury actually addressed that. He says something to the effect of uh, he, he moved his tent far enough away that he thought he would be safe. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> but left no note for the bishop. Else. Right, yeah. right, exactly. He's fun uh, though, William of Malmesbury, because um, Athelstan's buried at Malmesbury. So, um, yes. William, when he <laughs> is there and writing about it, is thus a bit of a fan uh, right. of Athelstan. But he claims to be working on the basis of a biography, uh, a Saxon biography of Athelstan, which seems to have disappeared from existence after William of Malmesbury right. used it. Like so most again, of William like of Malmesbury sources. Of, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. but it's, he, he writes in a way that he's indicating that he is using sources. Mm-hmm. It's just unfortunate that they've all... Uh, They've all since been lost. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just love the idea that if you want to get close to a head of state, I could just hang outside Buckingham Palace, <laughs> dancing a jig or whatever, and sort of say, "Elizabeth loves this kind of stuff." In right. you go. That's right. you go. It's, <laughs> it's slightly suspicious, as well, because I think there's a very similar, if not identical, story about Alfred. I think before is it before Eddington or is some? I'm sure there's Got a it. similar. It's the cakes one. <laughs> the cakes, yeah. But I'm sure there's a similar one with Athelstan and. Yeah, like it may mm. even be on both sides that like Athelstan, uh, Alfred dresses up as a minstrel, and then Guthrum dresses up as a minstrel, and they're both singing in each other's camps. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's very clever. Doesn't have the uh, ring of truth to it though. Yeah. Mm. The sword's a lovely detail as well, in that it's almost like the the original mm. bit you described of how he is so excited about everything that's happening that he goes out to battle without his sword. Yeah, it doesn't notice it falling out. It's, yeah, it's sort of the medieval mm. equivalent of the, you know when you lock yourself out of the keys and there's Get this moment phone. where right. you put your hand yeah. in your pocket it's like oh no oh, I know exactly where it is <laughs> you can just see his face yeah but of course the literary critic side of me wants to find something in the fact that he loses his sword right before the battle right it's a, a sword is not always just a sword oh, if, no. uh, Beowulf teaches us nothing else it's that a sword <laughs> is see. is very definitely a, a don't a have symbol. my scandal bell <laughs> <laughs> And that to uh, to have to sort of go pray pray to God to have your sort of your sword returned to you in time to uh, to wield it yeah. uh, is an interesting moment. Now there um, there are a couple other sources that I'm not really going to get into, but it's worth noting that of uh, the 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 Stanzaic guy of Warwick uh, includes oh, a lengthy lengthy description yes, of a battle does. that might be Brunenberg. I didn't read it, so I'm not prepared to talk about it, but. Uh, I'm assuming I did, and I'm not prepared to talk about it either. There you go. Yeah, and I assume that's not standard fare in uh, English elementary schools. Guy of Warwick. Uh, well, we um, we actually did encounter him weirdly as part of when we got invited to go to Warwick Castle uh, last oh, yeah. summer, mm. and oh, they did a whole thing about Guy of Warwick. They'd almost just read. Was oh, that the same man? Yeah, Guy of Warwick. Yeah. Well, it's a legend of. Uh, no, he's not a, a chronicle writer. He's a thief actually, or something, wasn't he? He did something with a big cow. Yeah, he killed a giant cow. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> Just like Eve All the, the great warriors do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of mythical, legendary, heroic figure, right? He's kind of right. bigger than history. Mm. Um, Guy of War. Apparently, he was as big as Robin Hood and King Arthur at one point. Yeah, exactly. Everyone yeah. forgot mm-hmm. about him. Yeah. Um, the other thing that tends to happen as you get into the 13th and 14th century is that you can see the English people starting to look at Brunenberg as a foundation myth for their state. And that's when you start seeing the kind of introduction, much more detailed introduction of issues of state. Um, so you have this, this stuff about Athelstan's daughter. Uh, no, it's his sister, right? Uh, Eadhild. And her eventual marriage to Hugh of Paris, or the, they call him the King of the Franks at that time. Um, so like the right, going right from Brunenberg, they move directly into this wooing of Athelstan's sister by the mm. King of the Franks and all of the amazing relics that he brought to kind of woo her and convince them to to make that connection. So uh, that starts to happen as well. So you get this state-building myth e- evolving as you move into the 13th and 14th centuries. Uh, but ultimately what we have is a battle uh, about which we know virtually nothing firsthand, very little secondhand, a great deal thirdhand. Mm. Uh, but the, uh, the battle ultimately, I have a quote here uh, from Paul Cavill. Uh, it says, The Battle of Brunenburg was fought by the West Saxon King Athelstan and his brother Edmund against a coalition of Scots, Strathclyde Britons, and Dublin Norsemen in the year 937. The English won. <laughs> that sentence lists almost all the points of consensus that have been reached about this battle. <laughs> there you go. We, we could have saved a lot of time. We could have. Yeah. We really could have. I mean, here we are in the year 2019, and uh, we're squeezing this, squeezing an hour or so out of this, and uh, that's right. all we really need to say. Right. I mean, it's a very depressing way to start or end a discussion of history, but <laughs> it keeps expectations low, I think, which is what we do here. That's right. Yeah. But we just, well, you know, maybe we need to put a little uh, epilogue after we've um, gone mucking around the golf course, because then all of a there sudden that'll open everything yeah. up. I think so. Right. We'll, yeah. we'll have solved it finally. <laughs> all right. I'm excellent. deadly serious. I'm, 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 you know, I think, I think so uh, this is your next vacation. I mean, it's, uh, do you play golf? That would help. <laughs> yeah, but you just have to put on a fancy outfit and then uh, get your your bag with your fake clubs in it, and you're good. Right? Get, yeah. Get, get your tam yeah. and your uh, your your puffy pants and get out there. That's right. That'd be fine. <laughs> the aftermath. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, toward the end of this poem, uh, we're told of all the enemy kings and earls who have been put to sleep. Uh, and after that, we're told that the enemies were left on the field to feed black ravens, white-tailed eagles, and gray wolves. Uh, now, that's an image that recurs in Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian poetry, the three animals symbolizing the aftermath of the battle. They're called the beasts of battle. It's a grim but probably not unrealistic way to think about the cost of war. Uh, in another Anglo-Saxon poem, The Wanderer, the narrator says of the battle's aftermath, War carried off some, sent them on their way. One a bird carried off over the high seas, i.e. in his stomach. Uh, and one the gray wolf shared with death. Uh, as Kevin Crossley Holland said of the poems, whoever lost the battle, the wolf was the winner. Uh, so after the battle is over, after uh, the... Uh, enemies have been left to be eaten by the beasts of battle. Uh, we have to talk about what exactly this battle means uh, for the future of England and for the future of uh, those who lost the battle. Uh, mm-hmm. So, where shall we begin? Well, I, I'll begin with the uh, the Welsh prophecy, if you want to just get a sense of what they thought would happen. <laughs> 
So this is supposedly written before the Battle of Brunebur, but who can really say? But it concludes with, with these lines. Wise men prophesy all that will happen. From Manor to Brittany will be in their hands. From Divid to Thanet it will be theirs. From the Wall to the Firth of Forth to their estuaries. Their chieftaincy will spread across Erequith. No return will there be for the Saxon foreigners. The Irish will return to their companions. May the Comre rise up, a brave company, armies about the ale and the tumult of warriors and God's rulers who have kept their faith. The men of Wessex in all their ships, the uproar will end, and the Cunan will be in concord with his fellows. The foreigners will not be called warriors, but the Catawalder's shitheads and his peddlers. The descendants of the Welshmen will be merry of speech. As for the tormentors of the island, a swarm of bees that will pass away. So how did it turn out for the Welsh? <laughs> well, 937, right. War at Brune. I, I like also that they've gone for the uh, the bee reference, yeah. which is how uh, bees, mm-hmm. bees. <laughs> described Athelstan at the start of it. So that's right. the uh, Welsh prophecy of yeah, what would happen. There's no, there's no question about the way things are perceived to have gone in the aftermath of the battle, right? I mean, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle uh, says with pomp and exultation, the English won age-long glory in the strife. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, as we said, the Welsh Chronicle, war at Brune. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah. very much treated as the report of a high school team's embarrassing sports loss in the local yeah. paper. Yeah. Just like, and they played. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they took that prophecy and were like kind of just putting it under stacks of papers like <laughs> right yeah. I'm not sure it's impressive because most of the prophecies that we've uh, come across in uh, Rex Factor are usually written several hundred years later and uncannily right. predict exactly <laughs> what would happen so it's quite remarkably accurate yes be completely wrong yeah yeah it's funny um yeah, I think it's. I think uh, both sides come away from Brunenburg nursing a grudge, right? Which is a right. bit odd because the English at this point could afford to be magnanimous. Uh, but there's no <laughs> doubt. Rarely uh, shown by our friends. No, <laughs> I mean they do get quite gloaty about it. Uh, uh, Athelward uh, writes: "The lands of Britain were brought together and made one. There was peace in every place, and all things were held in abundance." So that's Lovely. nice. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, Wasn't but there, there's all- another one I don't remember, but it, it says that uh, Athelstan ruled uh, so justly and and enforced peace so uh, beautifully that even if a gold neck ring were left on the roadside, it would stay there. No one dared oh, yes. to pick up what wasn't theirs. <laughs> Which also suggests a fairly iron-handed sort of justice. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, but I think if you look at the text, both sides really double down on the the idea of the other side as sneaky and untrustworthy Yeah. Uh, in the aftermath of this battle. You get the impression that this battle may have begun either with an ambush uh, or with uh, some kind of a trick. Or Ale Saga describes a kind of extended trick mm-hmm. uh, prior to the battle in which Athelstan stalls for time while he tries to gather up a larger force. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes sense. I mean, the English frequently uh, describe the Danes as untrustworthy, which, you know, given how many truces and baptisms the Danes had ignored, mm. makes some kind of sense. But the English after this get a reputation for cunning and sneak attacks, at least uh, in the writing of their enemies. Uh, the Scots and Irish chroniclers uh, definitely get a little salty about Athelstan. Uh, yes. they, they they like to point out that he is the, quote, illegitimate son of Edward the Elder, for one right. thing. Uh, they start to slip that in whenever they can, even though I think you guys have just been discussing on the uh, consort series yeah. that it's a little bit more complicated than that, that legitimacy and illegitimacy are a matter of degree rather than of absolutes. Yes. 
Um, although ironically, it's also the Sa- some of the Saxons also made that same argument about right. stuff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Meanwhile, the Scandinavian sources don't bear that same grudge. They're actually quite positive about Athelstan. Uh, The earliest text we have is uh, written at the end of the 10th century, uh, Dudo of St. Quentin. Uh, Dudo treats Athelstan as a man of honor. He calls him a friend to Rollo the Viking, who's the founder of Normandy. Uh, Eilsaga calls him a wise king, if maybe a little over-reliant on Icelandic conscripts. and the Heimskringla, written by Snorri Sturluson, says that when King Eric Bloodaxe and Queen Gunild fled from Norway, Athelstan, the king of England, sent word to Eric and offered him a dominion in England, saying that King Harold, Eric's father, had been a great friend of his, and that that would be remembered in his son. It's, a, it's mild praise, I admit, but I mean, compare that to the entire description of mm-hmm. Athelstan's brother Edmund in the Heimskringla. Athelstan was succeeded by his brother Edmund. He did not care for Norwegians. there's so many good stories that we've lost (laughs) right I mean there's an entire saga to be told about Edmund and his distaste for Norwegians Uh, uh, so I think we can say the the Dane law uh, continues to limp along for about a decade or so after Um, Mm Brunenborough most of its land at this point is really held by sub-kings submitting to Anglo-Saxon rule but uh, you guys were just talking about uh, in your episodes on Edmund and on Edmund's consort, uh, Elfkafu of Shaftesbury, mm. uh, that there's the sort of revival of the independence-minded Dane law in connection with uh, Olaf Guthrasen, right? Uh, that after after Athelstan died, people suspected that Edmund might be a weaker king. And so Olaf tries his hand at reclaiming York and Northumbria. That's right. Yeah, so it's almost really, it's a reverse of what happened with Athelstan, that when, you know, Athelstan takes York, when the the Viking ruler died and just wept straight in. Likewise, as soon mm-hmm. as Athelstan dies, suddenly York gets taken. Then a few years later, the five boroughs, which are these sort of very uh, sort of prominent areas in uh, Mercia, also fall to the Vikings. So Brunenburg mm-hmm. is this great victory for the Saxons that's seen as fully establishing the English nation. And yet actually within a few years of his death, they've gone back you know, decades in terms of the territory yeah. lost. It doesn't actually take right. Edmund very long to take it all back again, but nevertheless, he does have to do it. So in terms of how mm-hmm. significant Brunenburg is, it does raise a bit of a question mark, given that it only takes Athelstan dying for a lot of what he gains mm-hmm. and be lost. Right. And thinking about it the other direction, it's Olaf's, because Olaf dies in 942, yeah. and it's only then that Edmund is able to reclaim right. York from him. Yeah. And so it's again. It's you know, if either one of them doesn't die shortly <laughs> after their victory, yeah, right. You've got an entirely different story of English history. I mean, that's the classic issue that Ali's been noticing in history is that people do keep on dying. They just keep, yeah. It's at the worst <laughs> possible time. It I really mean, is, it's so yeah. predictable. Edward the first, right up there in Scotland, Indeed. just right. before he delivered his final knockout blow. It happens time and time again. <laughs> It does, yeah. And the key is you got to be able to predict when that person is going to die so you can take advantage as quickly as possible. Because that's what all these great uh, leaders end up doing, right? Mm. The funny thing is Athelstan wins the battle, but in terms of the leaders, he's actually the first one to die. Ah. Mm -hmm. Because Constantine actually uh, abdicates in the end. He doesn't even, you know, he doesn't die in the battle doesn't die in right. the immediate after. Although later sources really think he does. If oh, you, yes, if you look at really deeper. He did, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, they're adamant <laughs> yeah. about it. Uh, and an Ale saga, I said, doesn't even sort of bring up Constantine, but puts the entire thing on Olaf and says that Olaf dies. Uh, but also <laughs> yeah. says that Olaf is the king of the Scots. So yeah. he clearly <laughs> is just very confused about what's happening there. Yeah. 
I love that moment in the Scotty Chronicon where where it, it talks about Constantine dying, and then uh, he says, uh, "But clearly, this is not true because he went on to <laughs> rule for several more years in Scotland." I love the Scottish histories. We missed a John of Forden account of uh, uh, yeah. Brunenberg; be fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't bring that up. It seems like the, it would be right in his wheelhouse. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Although, again, maybe it's the kind of thing that you don't want to spend a lot of ink on when it doesn't go your way. Yeah, <laughs> true. Right. It's yeah. best swept under the rug. But yeah, it's uh, almost think, um, Brunenberg, because yeah. I was thinking about this and in terms of its significance and how it's not really very well known in England. I mean, no Saxon history is particularly well known to mm. people in England now, but it's almost like it's what didn't happen that's perhaps more important rather than what Brunaber actually did. Because if Athelstan mm. had lost and died, and if Edmund had died with him, with him, you might then have seen a more permanent um, loss of territory and York and Northumbria perhaps being more permanently established yeah. as a, a Viking kingdom, Scotland a bit more dominant in the north. It would have been such mm. a huge setback for the Saxons, whereas because they yeah, won right. the battle, perhaps it just kind of establishes the status quo but doesn't really change anything it's like if Harold had been victorious at Hastings in 1066 mm. the battle wouldn't be quite as significant and well remembered because it wouldn't really right. changed anything but because he lost the battle and everything changed that's why it's a pivotal pivotal date right sure. and it does also it does that job of uh, re sort of gluing together the two halves of the heptarchy right that had been that had been broken by the Dane law mm-hmm. so that it's only a few decades later, really, that the Battle of Malden happens and that it all goes south very, very quickly. Uh, but when in, what is it, 1013, that Sven Forkbeard mm. comes in and conquers England, he's not retaking the Dane law. He's conquering England yeah. mm. because the, the, the result of Brunenborough is it is one kingdom. And when you conquer that kingdom, you're conquering the whole thing. It ceases to be a partable piece of land and becomes England. Yeah. Although I think it does very briefly, there's a brief resurgence for the Dalian when Canute yes. um, comes back and then defeats Edmund Ironside, but they have a brief period where they do agree to split split the kingdom again, but conveniently... Yeah, Edmund, but he doesn't mean it. Conveniently, Edmund Ironside <laughs> then gets a, a pike up his bottom when he's sitting on the toilet. Right. And, uh, yeah, right. It's funny how that happens. Well, yeah. It doesn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you suspect that the Dane law is sort of a convenient fiction at that point that can be used to to establish a brief piece that turns into a lasting piece when swords up the bottom happen. Yes. Excellent. Well, that's a, a fine note to end on. That's a, <laughs> that's a terrible way to end. Oh, my goodness. But in typical saga thing fashion, we, you know, we, we gravitate towards the violence and the horrific. Right. right. Yeah. Quite right. One thing I was actually just going to add on the because um, I don't know if you're yeah. um, talking more about the uh, the poem or anyway, but um, something I read mm-hmm. on the poem that I thought was quite interesting in terms of the history that we've been doing was how um, that it makes a point of stressing that it's Wessex and Mercian troops yeah. fighting yes. together. And as I said, Athelstan there being this whole issue when he became king about Mercia and Wessex, mm-hmm. so it's quite interesting that the poem which, as you said, is sort of very nationalistic and sort of banging on what a great victory is for England, but it does make this mm-hmm. real big stress about how it's Mercia and Wessex fighting together. Mm. So perhaps yeah. for the Saxons, yeah. they liked to view it as this is the moment at which we are all, you know, moving forward together. We are now one England. Right. So even though Athelstan mm-hmm. had 
ruled the whole territory. Perhaps Brunenburg is seeing as this sort of uniting moment when they do all properly come together mm. and fight against an other, an enemy. Mm. Yeah. And you wonder, I mean, the future of uh, medieval England is that uh, Northumbria is always going to be sort of the odd man out, mm. uh, that they're going to continue to think of themselves as being more or less independent for centuries. Uh, you even have that establishing of what they call the Hollower folk, the uh, the people of the holy man, who consider themselves to be uh, subjects of Cuthbert, the saint uh, from Durham, who's uh, long dead uh, and yet is sort of their landlord, right? is their is their lord, uh, and that you wonder the the fact that in this battle when Wessex and Mercia bond in that united defense, quote unquote. Uh, of the land, Northumbria is very much a middle ground there, right? Mm-hmm. There are Northumbrians on both sides of that battle. And it's it's maybe not such a unifying moment for Northumbria in terms of its self-conception, uh, well, that there's there's still a future struggle to be had there to to absorb Northumbria fully into the fold. Sure. And I don't, I don't think the poem even really acknowledges the North um, as part of England, really. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really is talking about the battle itself. Um, and as Graham suggests, it, it talks about the Mercians. The, the Mercians did not deny hard hand play to any heroes. Um, right. But it also, so it suggests the Mercians are involved. But where mm-hmm. do where do Edmund and uh, Athelstan go when the battle is over? It says they they sought their home, the West Saxons land, exultant from war. There's nothing mm-hmm. in here really about this becoming the unifying moment of, yeah, of England or of Anglo-Saxon England. This is a battle poem. It's a praising the, the great victory of these two men, this, as they call them, the king and the prince, uh, Athelstan and Edmund. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still very, very clearly is defining Anglo-Saxon territory, at least, as Mercia and primarily Wessex, mm-hmm. not uh, this kind of grand vision that we later think of after the fact of a, a unified England. Especially for the chronicles, which we have to remember this poem is ultimately a chronicle entry. Uh, right. It's not unusual for the actions of an army to be essentially explained as the actions of its king or its leader. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't know that that a contemporary reader would necessarily see that as a discredit to the the uh, the Mercians uh, or to the Wessex war, uh, fighters to give the credit to the king who led the battle. Right. But I, all I'm trying to say is that there's no reference at all to anyone from the Danish territories, Northumbria, the newly right. conquered York. Right. Um, this is still a poem that is very distinctly Anglo-Saxon, but Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. in the sense of Mercian and Wessex and Southern. These are the Southern kingdoms rising mm-hmm. to defend their territory. Yeah, well, that's a slightly more depressing and less inspiring way to end. There you go. Well, that bottom. Yeah, Thanks for that. End. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And what we haven't discussed, of course, is that uh, Ali read a book which uh, featured the Battle of Brunenburg. Oh, yeah, Dunstan. Yeah, yeah but he was just oh, no. mucking around on a donkey for it. <laughs> What's As that? is his way. There's a, I suppose Dunstan's knocking around somewhere at this point. Yeah, yeah Dunstan, yeah. Uh, this great... Uh, figure in English and Saxon history according to uh, <laughs> certainly according to Conigledon a contemporary writer great sure. book a great book mm. uh, but it has Dunstan fighting in the battle of oh, well, does it you'd imagine that he would have fulfilled the role that Oda fulfills in miraculously producing the sword but alas that it's not sense. a Dunstan legend <laughs> yeah you know he just gets lost at the back on a on a donkey yeah <laughs> oh good okay <laughs> that's that's slightly more believable mm. yeah <laughs> I feared he was going to be the sort of the hero of the day or something. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm glad Dunstan managed to work his way in here. 
Right. Always, always has a foot in the door, does Dunstan? He is. I just suddenly thought. <laughs> yeah, we got him in. Well, thank you, uh, Graham and Ali, both for for coming in and joining us and sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, and your wit with us. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, it's been it's been a great time. Oh, thank yeah, you very much for having us on. We'll have to uh, return the favor. Mm. I think that sounds like a great idea. Oh, I would love to. Mm. Maybe sometime <laughs> in the near future. Yes. Uh, so we're going to be back fairly soon, uh, continuing the story of Ail's saga, uh, dealing with the aftermath of the death of Thorolf Skallagrimson at the Battle of Brunnenburg, uh, and what that means for Ail going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, if you'd like to contact us, uh, Andy, why don't you tell them how to do that? Because I can never remember the list of things that we That's are now right. on. Yes, you can get in touch with us via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. On Twitter, where we are at sagathingpod, or on Facebook, we're sagathingpodcast. We're also on Instagram for some reason, where we are sagathingpodcast. Um, I would also encourage <laughs> you to uh, listen to Rex Factor, our gracious guests here. And uh, how would they get in touch with you guys if they wanted to? Uh, so you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Uh, you can like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and uh, you could email us rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Lovely. And if you want to reach either one of us, you can just put a message in a metal box, bury it in a golf course outside of Bromborough. <laughs> uh, and, and we should be along anytime. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sometime next summer, yes. Excellent. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much, guys. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Fyrir sér alvaran Það rauður loginn gaf